0: Hey guys, my name is Crystal Kenny, and I'm in love with creating. All things artistic and imagination involved. I'm an American girl who chased her creative dreams all the way to Paris, France, making a living using photography. This podcast takes you inside the stories of all the artsy folks I've met along the way and gives you that extra push to discover your creative gifts. The desire to create is deeply inside each and every one of us, and I give you the tools and inspiration to find a new way of living a more creative life. This is La Vie Creative, the podcast. Claudine Hemingway is a descendant of famed writer Ernest Hemingway. We bumped into each other at a party and decided to team up and dive deep into French history, but with a twist, by bringing a spotlight to those lesser-known creatives in France. This is History with a Hemingway. So welcome back to Paris History Avec Hemingway. Today we are talking about Marie Louise Jaja. And I am so excited to learn about this woman because I have no idea who she is, and she has a super fun name.
1: She does have a very fun name. I kind of love it. But I kind of was like, is that really her last name? Because it's different at a museum. And we'll talk about that. So yeah. Marie Louise Jaja was born July 1st, 1838, in the Duchy of Savoie. And she came from a very large family. She had to start working at a very early age um, because, you know, with all those kids, there's a lot of mouths to feed. So as soon as she got a little bit older, you know, the ripe age of 13, she had to start working. She got a job in the town that they lived in. And then at 15, she moved to Paris with her aunt and her cousin because she got a job at the uh, La Nouveau Eloise, which was a lingerie store. I like it. I know. And of course, I'm envisioning, like, you know, this is the 19th century Victoria's Secret, <laughs> <laughs> which is still probably sexier than what we have today. <laughs> yeah. And it was probably like, you know, there's lots of red lace. This is, you know, these are my dreams, red lace and everything. And <laughs> it's also like, it's named Eloise, like Avalor and Eloise. It just seems very strange, but they had a pretty spicy relationship. So maybe it was. I don't know. So <laughs> she left um, there. And she started getting uh, started working at the Bon Marché. She worked at the candy counter. And while she was there, she met a gentleman that also worked for the store named Ernest Cognac. And he um, was working and he was a manager of another department and they were this fell madly in love.
0: I like romance stories.
1: And I love that they had a candy counter because I remember even my grandma telling me of this department store that they'd go to, that they'd have like a candy counter and they'd have all these different things that normally they don't have anymore in department stores. Mm -hmm. And I always have these visions of, you know, ladies shopping with their white gloves on and (laughs) all very fancy that we don't get to have those things anymore. Can't have nice things.
0: I know. Yeah, this is why we can't have nice things.
1: Can't have nice things. So the two of them got married on January 17th, 1872, and they decided they were going to open up their own store. So they opened up a small store that had been a former cafe on the corner of Rue de Pont Neuf and Rue de la Monnaie, and they named it Le Samaritain.
0: Oh, we know this place.
1: Yes, you do. So this small, still tiny shop that they had quickly expanded um, at the time, Leal the market was rapidly growing, getting bigger. Um, this was, you know, the the age of when they started adding. Mold, you know, Leal started as um, they had a lot of like um, they would have clothing and and fabrics and stuff. It wasn't always just all food like that. We know we think that we know of what Leal was. Mm-hmm. So they had all sorts of stuff. So it also drew more people into living near there, and so. Um, their little tiny store was getting busier and busier all the time. So at that time, you know, you know, the block, this huge block where the store sits now, and it was just this little tiny corner cl- closer to Pont Neuf. So, yeah. So this Belgian architect, Franz uh, Jourdain, he enlarged the store and he added all these different Art Nouveau touches to it in 1883. So the, they kept adding. At that time, they just kept adding and purchasing more of the block, more and more of the block. And then, you know, every year or two, they would add on to it and add another building. And then they'd keep going and going and going. And so it stretched all the way to the Rue de Rivoli. It is this pretty, if you look on like Google Maps and you look at literally the size of the footprint of it, it's huge. still mm. still, still today. So they ended up doing all this. They ended up opening another store um in 1917 on the uh, Boulevard de Capucine it was actually called the Samaritan Luxe so it was all like a little bit more um luxurious he um also kept um part of his art collection there which we'll talk about but in um 1933 is when it kind of encapsulated this whole entire block that was down by the by the bridge so this time when they were setting all this up, this was like the heyday of department stores. So at that point, there was, you know, BHV, there was bon Marche, the Galerie de Louvre, which is across from the Louvre. Now it's basically empty. There's like one person that remains in there. That's where our friend Kemi's dad had a gallery. Oh, um, Yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty, it was also a pretty big department store. And now it's, there's literally one lady that's holding out and staying in there and the rest of it is empty. Um, and of course, print So to stand out, they wanted to figure out a way to stand out against all these other ones. And so they did a bunch of different things that at that time stores weren't doing. So they opened a credit department. They offered people credit, um, and also offered things at, marked at the same price. So whether they played by credit or cash, they, they all played the same price. They oh. kept their prices very low. And when they were advertising for it, they kept them low so that people wouldn't come in there and haggle with them. They were getting oh. like the lowest offered price. Yeah, They would have sales twice a year. And they also created a catalog and did a mail order and home delivery.
0: Wow, interesting.
1: I know, in the 19th century. Pretty cool. Wow, is that like
0: the first catalog?
1: I it, no, I don't think it was the first catalog, but it was. It's it goes back there, and you know, of course, we envisioned you know some like two inch thick Sears and Roebuck catalog that I've never <laughs> seen when I was a kid. Yeah, <laughs> um, but they ended up uh, at, uh, having changing rooms so people could ch- try things on. These were things that nobody did. Nobody did these things at that time. Oh, you couldn't
0: um, even try things on.
1: You couldn't try things on. They wouldn't let you um, return things at that time, but they had made it so people could return things. They could exchange things. Um, and so all of these things drew more and more shoppers to them. They gave mm-hmm. their employees a discount, a 20% discount. And they also enforced his dress code. The men had to wear dark colors and the women only, always had to wear black and white People could not stand around chit-chatting or have their hands in their pockets.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they also gave their um, employees profit sharing. So they did a lot of things um, that to, you know, to help their employees, to bring, you know, really good employees to come work for them and also to keep the customers happy and kind of pull them away from the other stores. And it was, you know, it was like the place to shop basically. And people would say... There was a slogan about you know that you could only find it at Le Samaritan. like that's where they had everything.
0: So why did they
1: close? Well, I mean, this was early on, so um, you know, as as with all those things, it changed over time. Um, but they ended they ended up having creating other things for their um, employees. They created a fund that would help assist them with hospital bills if the the employee didn't have insurance. They set up a maternity hospital. They had a retirement home for employees. They did childcare. They even had an orphanage that they set up, and they built in some apartment buildings that would house five hundred different employees.
0: That's crazy. They were so advanced and they actually took care of their people.
1: Yeah. It's so advanced. And it's funny because I used to work for a large um, retailer in the Northwest and all of those things. Um, I was like, this sounds like, did they just go and copy their business model? Because these are all things that they would do. <laughs>
0: they could have. They were like the originals. They were
1: the original. Um, but they later on in uh, September 3rd, 1906, she also ended up opening up a Um, a botanical garden, an alpine botanical garden um, in the Griff Valley near where she was born.
0: A botanical garden.
1: Yeah. So they were involved in a lot of different things. Um, But the, um, you know, the store, as we know, because it just reopened, the Samaritan, it came, the name came from um, a pump house that was on the Pont Neuf and if you were on the Pont Neuf, you were on the right bank side and you started to cross the river. If you were on the um, downstream side, um, facing towards like the Orsay, if you basically there's all those little alcoves there. Well, right after the first alcove, there was this building built on stilts into the water. It was pretty good size. It um, was a pump house, it had two big wheels in it. And on the outside of it, it had a sculpture of a the samaritan and um the well of jacob and a and jesus there and so that so they called it the le samaritan
0: oh that's where the name comes from from. the
1: name comes from so it came from this pump house at one point very early on before he even had the store he set up in one of those little alcoves he put this red umbrella over it and he set up in one of those little alcoves and he was selling things
0: that's crazy. Yeah,
1: right next to it before he had the store. Um, so it was went back to the 17th century. Henry IV had commissioned it to provide more water for that area around the Louvre. It was designed by Jean Netour. The building stood um, stood there in the water on these stilts. Um, and in, in it up above, he built an apartment into the building. And uh, that's where he lived, which would be a pretty great place to live. I like that idea. Yeah, it's kind of a nice one. Uh, but on the facade that sculpture that they had um it was uh, it was built at that time in 1712 it was um redone again and then again in 1771 by Soufflot who was the one who built uh, and designed the Pantheon in Paris. And they had added a clock on it and then a little uh, a little bell tower on the top that had a um, one of the very large bells that was then later given to, um, Santu Stash Church. It's all connected. It's all connected. But in 1729, Louis the 16th decided to decommission the project. The sculptures were removed. Um, the national guard moved in for a short period of time. And then in 1813, they destroyed the building. Cause as you know, it's no longer there. <laughs> Rude. It was all taken down. Um, uh, but there's some actually really cool, um, Pictures of it. There's actually some paintings that are in the reopened Musee Carnavalet, the History of Paris Museum. So um, I will be going there shortly and I'll be sure to take some pictures and share them with everybody so you can see the idea of what this looked like that was on the side of the bridge.
0: Very different, that's for sure.
1: Very different. Um, so when, uh, when they opened up their store that was on Rue de Capucine or Boulevard de Capucine, um, it included a lot of the couple's art collection that he started to gather. He was inspired by the Carnavalet to have them displayed because at that time, you know, the museums of Paris, you would think because everything in Paris seems so old, the museums actually aren't that old. Um, You know, you had the Louvre opening, um, originally opening actually during the revolution, but you know, that was, you know, the very late 18th century. So, you know, we, these museums didn't go back actually that far when you think of it in the grand scheme of Paris timeline. Uh Um, So he was kind of inspired with like sharing this and showing off his art but on December 27th, 1925, Mary Louise um, died and um, Ernest Ernst was devastated. He, they'd never had any children. Um, he basically focused on all of his collecting and then um, trained his great nephew, Gabriel Cognier, to take over, um, take over the business. He ended up dying on February 28th, 1928 and left his house and his art collection to the city of Paris.
0: Oh, that was nice of him. Are
1: you figuring out what the museum is?
0: <laughs> no, I'm not that good. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> on uh, January 4th, 1929, the Musee Cognos- Cognat J, which is, they spell it J-A-Y. This is why I was just like, wait, her name is Jaja, J-A-J-A. And then somehow the museum is cognate J, J-A-Y. Yeah. First it opened in their former home um that they and it stayed that way for about 60 years the their farmer home was in um not in very good shape and so the city decided to close it down and it closed in 1988 so you know not that long ago and then it reopened into the Hotel Donon which is where it is now it mm. is very close to actually the A. it's in that little area um it's a very um it's a small building the Hotel Donon was owned by um and uh, uh Denault, who basically had the land subdivided from the um, St. Catherine des Écoliers, and they ended up taking part of that land because that, at that point, this um, this uh, convent just basically covered a huge area of the Marais that we know today. So he, they ended up taking over some of that and um, they ended up having this house that was there. There's two different houses that they kind of joined um, together and um, the Hotel de is now at the Musée Carnet J, and it opened on December eighteenth, nineteen ninety. What I had no idea. This is so fascinating. Yeah. So it's on um, it's on nine Rue Payenne and eight Rue Elziver, El- El- and you could go there. It's very tiny. It's part of the Museum of Paris uh, structure, so it's free to go mm. see. I um, like that. Yeah, if there's a special exhibit, you could go in there and see. It's really interesting because when I went there, there was literally nobody there, but like me and one security guard. <laughs> um, you could walk through all of the different rooms. Um, it's it's I love it because the, the floors really creak when you're walking, um, when you're you the know. only one there. It's yeah, it's just so old. Um, when they opened it in 1990, uh, Christian Lacroix, the designer, had he did the um drapes and all of the rugs for it. Oh, wow! It really cool. Um, but it's just a bunch of collection of small rooms. There's a bedroom that's very small that I think was her bedroom, or you know, it's filled with you know some of the things of her bedroom, it wasn't the house they lived in, but it's very pink everything's pink <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that It could be a little exhausting it was it's, it's pretty tiny I mean it's like a walk-in closet size bedroom <laughs> um, but in um, 1974 that's when they um, had bought this building the city did and then you know restored it um, to what it is today the paintings you could find in there there's everything from our favorite um Vijay Lebrun you have Francois Boucher um, Maurice Canton de la Tour Watteau Rembrandt they had a very huge collection it's one of the largest collections of uh British art that you will even find in Paris is there
0: hmm well that's not a surprise. they're not big fans of the British <laughs> yeah
1: they, uh, <laughs> there's an entire room of uh chinoiserie which is all the chinese um inspired art and uh pottery which is really cool There's a upper, you walk all the way up to the top into the attic space is kind of um, a kind of a neat place for kids. uh, But it's very, it's very warm (laughs) when I went up there because it was at the top. Um, In the 1970s, people stopped uh, going to the Samaritan and the family that owned it at the time sold it to LVMH in 2001.
0: Oh, so very recently, really. Very
1: recently, yeah. The store was closed in 2005. Um, it was closed because of structural um, safety issues. Hmm. So um, it was uh, shut down because they said that, you know, it was in pretty bad disrepair. And then it just reopened recently. It has a school in there. It has a very fancy hotel. And it has, um, sh- you could go in there and shop again. And the lower levels that have... Um, it's all very, you know, LVMH is Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, which is like the largest luxury brand in the world. They own everything from, you know, what the initials are to Vuitton um, they just, they own everything. So I've seen a lot of pictures of it online and they, you know, there's a whole area that's all set up dedicated to Vuitton um, you know, and they're selling, I'm sure, a majority of what the products that they actually own.
0: Yeah, I read a recent article about somebody who was really disappointed in it. I have not gone yet, even though I'm here all the time, but we'll have to go when you come and go check it out.
1: Yeah, I guess if there's like a people, there's a line, you know, of course, because of, you know, COVID restrictions, they're probably limiting how many people could come in. But um, I have seen uh, pictures and videos of people waiting in line for like an hour to go inside. Um, I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, it's stunning <laughs> inside. I mean, they've retained, I mean, they did so much work. It was really cool because in the last uh, couple years they had out on Facebook where they would do videos, you know, like weekly videos um of the progress inside and workmen um inside of it. It has these beautiful iron railings that are all art nouveau and you could look down, you know, from the center of it. The center's open. Um, mm-hmm and it has tile work and everything. It's absolutely gorgeous inside. So they were kind of really sharing the process of redoing that um, with people along the way. So it is definitely something you want to go and check out and see. Um, I'm not so sure about that waiting in line business So <laughs> Yeah. I'm not waiting in line to go to a store. That's crazy. Yeah. But there's, yeah, the fancy hotel. I don't think that's, um, I think it's called um, Hotel Blanc. I think. Um, I don't think it's a, uh, open yet. I think it's open s- soon, and I am sh- i wouldn't be surprised. I would hope to think that maybe they have some sort of fancy rooftop bar or something.
0: Well, we like that idea. I'm down that. I know. We like
1: that. We definitely like that to go check that out. Um, but the store itself is, um, is gorgeous. So it's definitely probably something you definitely want to go check out and see. And their museum, the Musee Cognache is, um, is small and is definitely worth the visit. They're having a really cool exhibition right now called um, it's basically the exit about the senses. And so they have like these Boucher and all these other very Rococo um, art that's very, you know, it's a little on the sexy side and it's, it's all like, you know, the senses and and sensual and, you know, feel and touch and all of these things. Um, their website for the museum is horrible. It looks like it was probably (laughs) the 1980s and it hasn't been updated since. So if you go to their website, don't expect to see, you know, a uh, version of some of the stuff you would see. It's not very well done. Um, but it is a really cool, it's very cool. I mean, you could go in there, you know, and spend an hour and be in and out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and it is free. So I think I did it one day when I did a bunch of the museums, like you go to Archie's, which is right around the corner from that, which um, is that beautiful set of buildings. And that actually has the, it was the archives of the city of Paris. And you could actually go in there and visit um, it's really gorgeous inside and they actually have a, um, in this really cool case, the last letter that Marie Antoinette wrote to her sister-in-law in this really cool. Oh, case. That that's
0: wild. I want to see that.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. So you could kind of make a whole day of it. There's a bunch of museums, small museums in that general area, um, that you could go check out and visit.
0: This all sounds fantastic.
1: Yes. And the Carnival A. But if you're going to go to the Carnival A, little uh, tip for you, make sure if you're going to be coming there the next few months, tickets are free. But you do have to book them online in advance. Book two different days because they since they open, including the first day they open, people had been waiting for five years for this place to reopen and they went on strike <laughs> the first day. And Uh, the workers did, and it didn't open that day that it was supposed to. So, the people that had tickets to go that first day, I'm sure were quite upset. Um, They've since gone on strike a few more times. So, anybody that's coming, especially if you only get to be there for like a week in Paris, get two different days for tickets just to be safe because you don't want to get all the way there and then have them go on strike. And then you (laughs) (laughs) miss.
0: I was just there last week and I'm trying to figure out what's changed because it doesn't look very different from five years ago.
1: <laughs> I know that they like there's this staircase that they added and a bunch of when I went, I went like two months, two weeks before they closed. So when in 2016 and when I went there, it was basically like most of it was already closed off because I was like, where is all this stuff? And they had, or you know, slowly been closing it off. So, yeah. um You know, I think that it'll be vastly different from when I saw it five years ago. Um, But it is it's also pretty big. Um, The upper floors are filled with a lot of stuff. So you definitely want to add, you know, maybe having those tickets two days um, you go both days if they're not on strike to go break it up to go check out everything. And if you go to yeah. like I do, you'll go like five times.
0: <laughs> they're actually like crazy about your ticket too. Because when I was walking around, like we had to show our ticket at like every section. I'm like, I'm in, guys. Like, and oh, just that's like weird. Well, they have a giant restaurant in the garden. The garden's really beautiful. Oh, the garden's yeah. bigger, but I guess they don't want people sneaking in from the restaurant to the museum. But I'm just like, calm down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of at that. And then it's always like, I always try to remember, like, when I go to museum, I put the pot, like the ticket in like my back pocket, if I have, you know, if I'm wearing something as a back pocket, because then when they ask you multiple times, I could easily pull it out. Because for some reason, if I put those things in like the pocket of my purse, somehow it like instantly disappears.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Be careful.
1: Yeah, or wear it around your neck. that's that's true i like it
0: well thank you claudine for all that valuable information and make sure you tune in to claudine's virtual tours every sunday check out her website claudinehemingway.com where she walks live with you in paris and gives you all this fun history
1: Thank you for listening to Paris History Avec A. Hemingway. If you want to find out some more, you could always find me on my Instagram page, Claudine Bleu Blanc Rouge, and that's B-L-E-U as in the French way to spell it. And each day I post a daily history lesson about a person or a place or something in Paris or it's lots of fun facts. And then also at ClaudineHemingway.com where you can also sign up for my newsletter there.